This is Coda Radio, episode 358 for May 20th, 2019. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and its related technologies. I'm filling in for Mr. West Payne this week, who's off in Barcelona, Spain. It's a Coder classic, because joining me, as always, is our host, battling the Gators in Florida. It's Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Hello, hello, Chris. Hello. It feels good, right? It's back. It, you know, it's it's it, it, it's it's like my my ex husband came back to me. This is beautiful. I love it. I just had to send him to Spain. You know, then finally it could be you and me again, just the two of us. That's an expensive way to do that. Um, <laughs> hey, I'm a VP now. <laughs> Listen, I, that's right. That's right. You got that corporate job. <laughs> Actually, this is funny. L put it all together. Um, I don't even think Linux Academy is paying for it. I think because uh, L is such a contributor to the community that they they're like, please come. <laughs> I think this. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure like it was like all expenses paid trip. Although they do have to volunteer and do work. I don't know if we told them that yet, but he'll figure that out pretty quick. Surprise! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's good to be with you. It's good to be with you, especially on an episode where we've got like. A good mix of hoopla, a good mix of feedback. The only thing we're missing is like a classic pick or something. Yeah. Maybe we can randomly come up with something. Like the Mac Pro we could talk about? Sure, yeah, I'm good with that. Oh, that's not a pick. That's not a pick. That's a dream. That's a dream. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I'm just going to go through some of the feedback and see what you guys have wrecked while I've been gone. Uh, But, uh, you know, because uh, the universe hates me, my Markdown preview tool uh, took a dump right as we started the show today. Mm. You ever had one of those? Happens all the time. I'll tell you what. I tell you. I tell you what. So... Anyways, we're just narrowly avoiding, too, I should say, narrowly avoiding the whole WWDC thing. Now, I think you and Wes are going to have to cover that next week, right? Is it like, it's the week after? It's very soon. It's June the 3rd? The only reason why I say we're narrowly avoiding it, it's not that I mind the show talking about it. It's just that if if I came on the show during the WWDC week... You'd buy five HomePods. <laughs> No, I'm going to be too busy buying the HomePods to be on the show. No, everybody would assume we're talking about it because I'm on the show. Not because it's WWDC week, but just because I'm on the show. Well, let me, let me, let me explain something. Okay. If there is a Mac Pro launched, we're going to have to rename the show. Why? Why is that? You think you're going to get one? I have wanted one since I was a wee lad. <laughs> Although I probably can't afford one, given what they charge for the iMac Pro. It starts at like 5000 maybe. 6000 Oh, I, I think five is generous. I'm, I'm thinking like eight. Really? Yeah, I think it's like a, I think it's kidding aside. I think it's a 10K plus purchase for most people, which sounds insane to me, but yeah. you know how Apple is. They're going to make it. They're like, you know, this is our Tesla, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. You wanted this? Fine. Pay for it. <laughs> That's what it's going to be. Here's what we did we took a Dell case, we laminated it a few times, and we multiplied the price by 20 and ran Mac OS on it. <laughs> All right, so let's get into some feedback from last week's episode, 3 OS's One GPU. Uh, Tom wrote in, and he says, Google has contributed a ton to Linux in the open source, but at this point, it's no comparison to what Microsoft is now doing. They've got a lot of developer mindshare as a result of that, but Microsoft has spent a lot more on acquisitions and developer relations. 
and has simply made some great moves since Nadella took over. You have VS Code, GitHub, and TypeScript, which are all crushing it now. And it sure looks like 2019 will be the year that Microsoft took over the software development scene. He says, by the way, your analysis has been right all along. All roads do lead to Azure. Google was busy trying to pivot to the enterprise with Google Cloud. Microsoft came along and snatched up the hard-won dev mindshare right underneath them. Google blew it by not buying GitHub, and I admire how Google tends to prefer to spend on engineers, but in this case, Microsoft outflanked them. He's right, only in that at all of the major events in the last couple of weeks, I have seen people talking about a lot of Microsoft's tools. Sachi Nadella was up on stage at Red Hat. VS Code was on the slides at Red Hat. It's um, huge right now what they're doing with GitHub and the private repositories that they've just announced or public repositories as well. It's, it's um, I don't know, man. It's like, it's like Microsoft has has realized that they can be the the like the development platform for the for the web and Google is trying to still trying to like get like their infrastructure to be a legitimate product like they're going through a, a renaming process right now yeah they are actively trying to solicit uh, businesses i've gotten a couple of notes from listeners that have gotten offers from Google to come in and write them a check to move off of AWS like they're they're really scrambling right now Someone told me something like that. I sort of didn't believe it. I've got three different stories. Really? That I can't directly share on air. One that I have very, very, very familiar knowledge with, and two others that I got very good descriptions of what the offers were. Yeah, I mean, there's so much there. Just with the AWS stuff and Google, Like, if you've ever used Google App Engine and you've also used AWS or DigitalOcean and Docker, Google, it's just not a pleasant environment to work in. It's... Not that it's bad, it works, right? I mean, I'm not trying to, but yeah, they're, they're, they're somewhat behind. I mean, I would say from a DevOps perspective, my preferred solution is just Do and, and Doku, my way to glory. But if I have to use one of the big clouds, AWS is, uh, although honestly, Azure, because yay, click to deploy, and I'm lazy. <laughs> you know, I feel like what, what Google Cloud had going for it was, we can be sort of the neutral cloud provider. We'll work with Kubernetes early on before anybody else would. You know, they were that was that was their big, um, well, one of I shouldn't say their big, but that was one of their big value adds is that they were more vendor neutral. They would work with multiple different vendors and clouds. Yeah, and it turns out that wasn't that hard for the other vendors to implement. It didn't take them that long to figure out a way to provide Kubernetes services and things like that. Um, and that's on my mind right now just because our crew's at Kubicon, like Wes. But um, that sort of changed the game. And I think it removed some of the value proposition of Google Cloud. Not all of it. In fact, there was a TechSnap episode we did uh, towards the beginning of the year, I believe, with a training architect from Linux Academy, uh, Matt Ulayson, who is brilliant and really knows the Google Cloud platform and was able to clearly, clearly articulate reasons why it is a good product. And so that is, you know, fair enough to them. It is it, they've built something there, but it, it it seems a little too late. And I think that's really Tom, Tom's point in the feedback. What do you think about this? Emacs Romancer wrote in, hadn't really crossed my mind. And let's just chew on this for a sec for a second. He says, "Isn't in theory the Windows subsystem for Linux version one more interesting from a technological point of view? Sort of more like how Wine, but it was in the opposite direction." 
Whereas WSL2 is more like a tiny VM that's just running a Linux kernel in Hyper-V. So it's not as tech, like they were trying to do something technically really interesting with WSL1. It didn't quite get there. But in a way, isn't it actually a more interesting technological experiment when you're doing that translation instead of just doing a big old VM? I mean, interesting in terms of, was it more interesting to read the Microsoft research papers? Sure. Was it more practically viable? Well, it's hard because WSL2 isn't really out in, in a 1.0 form yet. Yeah, fair enough. My, my bet's going to be, no, day-to-day, like, like I, you know, we were talking a little bit about like my assertion that Windows 10 might end up becoming the most popular quote-unquote Linux distro. Um, yeah, I mean... It, I, I just have a feeling that from a practical, boring perspective of getting crap dumb, WS2 is going to be the way to go. But certainly, there's an alternate universe maybe where I definitely get his point where the work being done on WSL1, uh, for lack of a better term, that kind of translation strategy might have actually bled into services like Wine and stuff like that. Although we have a lot of stuff like that now, right? We have Proton, we have Wine. Um, I, I almost feel like, weirdly enough, the odd man out here is Mac in terms of being able to kind of like cross-pollinate between the, you know, the ecosystems, the systems, operating systems. I do get his point, and it did make me smile. I think I kind of agree. Doing that translation is maybe more interesting, but when it really comes down to it and you're just trying to get work done, especially when you're trying to develop software, the practical nature of having the entire kernel, it just matters so much more that that functions, that... um, I think at the end of the day, I think we will not even really give it a second thought. It doesn't matter. Moving forward, speaking of Windows, I was just reading this uh, feedback from uh, Mongoz. (laughs) I'm sure sure I'm getting that one wrong. And he's, he's pointing out a tool that makes me realize something. If I were to spend like a solid year to three years, like just getting my head into Windows 10, I bet you I could make it a killer workstation OS. He says, hey, Mike, I wanted to point you to a little tool that you can use to update your Windows machine from the command line. One of the features is it will do a reboot loop between updates, meaning you just run something like this from a fresh install. You come back a couple hours later with a fully updated Windows machine. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. ABC update, I believe is what it's called. And I bet you there is tons of like tools like that that if i could learn how to use those on windows i could probably get by pretty good yeah i mean that would have saved me just so much time yeah that first (laughs) fresh install it's such a bad experience on windows like it just really sucks (laughs) it's weird to me that no one on like the windows team is like hey this is this is terrible can we like fix this right right and the excuse is always that this is the go-to the go-to excuse is, well, most Windows consumers never experience that Windows. They experience a Windows that they have pre-purchased on a PC. Yeah, you know what? Those images are always like six to nine to a year out of date, right? Six, nine months, maybe, if you're lucky. That They still have months worth of updates, firmware updates, and driver updates, and all the individual applications with their individual install wizards and their individual update wizards are all going to run. It's no good. But I like that feedback. That uh, was really good feedback. That was all from the subreddit this week. I was going to uh, do a deep dive into the email inbox, but there were so many great comments in the subreddit, I stopped there, and I left the email for you guys next week. I didn't rob Peter to pay Paul this week. Coderadio.reddit.com if you want to jump in on that, or if you would like to send an email, it's coder.show slash contact. 
Well, it's kind of a lull this week because last week was Red Hat Summit and it was the uh, Python conference and it was Build and um, Google I.O. and a few others. This week, it's like, there's some hoopla, but it's not like going to change your world hoopla. But that gives us an opportunity to kind of chat about a few things that are more retrospective and introspective. And there's a post that you, was it you that sniffed it up? You or Wes sniffed this up, and we've been chatting about it in our Slack. This uh, looking back uh, at an app that somebody wrote like six years later where they took a really hardline stance about something. <laughs> and then, you know, six years later, had some reflection and realized not everything is as black and white. We'll link to the whole thing in the show notes. But six years ago, he writes, I wrote one of my most popular blog posts on logic in a Rails app in which I debate some of the critiques about extracting code from the controller. But to summarize, his argument was that Rails is just a UI layer and business logic should be put in domain objects instead of keeping them somewhere in the model view or the controller. He says, to give you some context, he writes, it was uh, a time when I was starting to grow as a Rails or Ruby developer. I was reading a lot of blog posts on the topics and I started to have very strong feelings as to how Rails code should be written. Fast forward six years. <laughs> hey, I'm back, man. I'm bringing, I'm bringing everything. <laughs> it's all the classics. And he says, a lot of things have happened in my career as a software developer. My experience has gotten more rich. I've launched more projects. My day-to-day -day work has changed. I've climbed the company ladder. And, frankly, he's gotten more emotionally mature, which thankfully has prevented him from writing a few more controversial blog posts. So what do I think about the post now, he writes. Well, it's really about the trade-offs and the personal preferences. If you found a way to keep all the logic in the controller while your team iterates fast and does not make silly mistakes, code is easily digestible, new features can be added without pain, then good for you. It doesn't really matter what any other person says. Uh, he writes that, and I wonder, this is really what I'd like to get your thoughts on too. It's very hard to maintain a productive discussion on the internet about the right approach for building software. Because that may be very similar to just discussing religion for some people. Mm. There's no much, uh, there's so much, he says, there's so much hidden context that you might as well just respect the other's decision and focus on their personal insight instead. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. That is, that is my philosophy right there in words I've never been able to put it. And I'm curious what you think about that. I think that's pretty fair. Um, I mean, I, his original argument from six years ago isn't kind of that compelling to me either way because I just sort of don't think it matters. Um, it's weird though, right? Like I ha myself have been going through this kind of zenification process. You sort of have to at some point just because like you're going to end up dealing with a lot of systems and a lot of integrations. Now, don't, I'm not always perfect in this. Right. It's a journey. <laughs> right. It's, it's a journey where you have to accept things that are maybe like violating what you consider to be principles of good engineering or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that this is a Rails developer. His name is Andre Lisnik. Rails was known for being quite, shall we say, strict when it was originally launched way back in the, you know, the battle days of, what is it, 2006, 2008? Oh, yeah. Now Rails is legacy and people are basically doing whatever the hell they want, Right. Having said that, I'm not sure I'm ready to shave my head and, and join the uh, the Hare Krishnas quite yet. I mean, there the definitely are things that are just bad, right? Like, there is such a thing as wrong. Not everything is relative. I pass it to Chris. All right. 
I think you're, well, I don't really think we, I think we don't need to dwell on it. I think you're probably right. Um, and it's, it's, um, it sort of tracks my evangelism for Linux. When I was younger, I, I built a career around convincing people to switch to Linux. Sure. Both, you know, as a contractor and as a podcaster. And it was a, everything should be on Linux. Everybody, everything, all Linux. As I got older, my mind shift has, has changed to Linux is a great solution for me, but everybody has a reason to use the tools that they need to use. And I don't understand all of the context of it. And I think in part it has been, I've been doing something that on the surface seems simple and people think they understand what's involved with making something. And then when you actually learn what's involved, you understand there's, there's so many, there's like what the words he uses here are perfect. There's so much hidden context. There's so much hidden context that I cannot appreciate or understand that I just need to trust in their personal insights. If I find that if I find someone to be intellectual and seems to have their crap together, then I just tend to trust their insights and uh, don't get judgy about the tools or the, the platforms they're using. And I think that's a similar transition the author went through here and uh, essentially. Yeah. And I, I, th- yeah, I think there's also like, there's the extremes here, right? There's full on Buddhists and, and then there's what is, in my opinion, far more common, like Reddit rage, right? <laughs> yeah. How much do you want to bet those people either skew uh, young or um, they have something else going on? If they're, if they're, I bet there's not a lot of people raging on Reddit above 40 that don't have a complex set of circumstances. <laughs> Speaking of complex circumstances. <laughs> I know, right? And the other, and this is something we didn't get a chance to talk about a lot last week. The Python Language Summit, like I just uh, alluded to earlier, was going on. And um, true to form, we have uh, pulled out what may be what some consider the most, quote-unquote, controversial talk. Um, it was by Amber Brown from The Twisted Project. Um, and she shared some of her criticisms about the Python Standard Library. I thought maybe for some context, if you're not familiar, The Twisted Project, just a really short version, it's an event-based framework for internet applications. So, um, you know, HTTP events, SSH events, IMAP events, DNS events, it, you, something happens, it triggers something. Yeah, it's like an, it's a networking library. It's a very fancy networking library. Yeah, it's great. And um, boy, she had some things to say, and I just thought I'd read just you a couple of highlights. We won't have to, like, read it all, but uh, she says, Python claims to ship with batteries included, but according to Brown, without external packages, it's really only marginally useful. For example, async I.O. requires external libraries to connect to a database to speak or to speak HTTP. The SSL module requires monkey patches to connect to non-ASCII domain names, uh, etc. Actually, she lists like um, four different examples. Other standard library modules are simply inferior to alternatives on uh, PyPy. The HTTP.client documentation advises readers to use requests. And the date-time module is confusing and it compared itself to competitors such as Arrow and Default Till and Moment. But there's also just poor quality lagging features and obsolete code. She says the batteries are leaking. She thinks some of the bugs in the standard library will never be fixed. The batteries are leaking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good, isn't it? That is pretty good. Savage. Savage, yeah. And even when bugs are fixed, uh, PyPy libraries like Twisted cannot assume that they'll run on the latest Python. So they must preserve their bug workarounds forever. Brown identified new standard library features that were really too little or too late, leaving users to depend on backports to use features that were in Python 2. She's got several examples like socket.send message, 
And she says Twisted is forced to ship its own C extension to use the send message in Python 2. Even though Python 2 is nearly at the end of life, she says it's going to be until like the end of time, they're going to, she says, quote, distributions like Red Hat and others will keep Python 2 alive until the goddamn end of time. 100% true. <laughs> That's what she says. <laughs> So, so we should set the stage, stage here, right? Because I think folks who don't work in like a Ruby-ish Python world won't understand. There are many reasons to dunk and make fun of Ruby developers. And our defense is always, how's that Python 3 transition going? Because it's not. Right. Right. So there's a huge current schism between Python 2 and Python 3. And like, yes, if you are doing a new project, of course you just use Python 3 if your organization allows you to, which... Spoiler alert, many don't. <laughs> um, and you're fine. But the truth is the transition just hasn't gone well. It's caused, um, like if you ever want to laugh, just go into a Python forum and say, need help uh, upgrading from Python 2 point insert version here to 3 and just like watch. Not that we should troll each other's communities. That's wrong. I, I mean, I, I want to take a moment and just say, uh, uh, Python. I have a soft spot for Python, so I got to defend my Python love a little bit here. It is, it is complicated, but um, I don't know if the solution is to cram everything into the standard library and and rip all the code out, uh, and, and to criticize it for for some of these things. Um, I think the flip side could also be argued. You could argue that by developers like the Twisted Project continuing to use Python two code and s encourage users to use the older Python stuff that you're slowing down the overall Python ecosystems yourselves. And that if they were making users move forward, the overall ecosystem would be in better shape. So it, the blame goes both ways here. I, got, I mean, I just got to defend Python a little bit. Yeah, no, I'm not actually against Python, right? I, so it, it's funny because I have kind of the opposite thing. Coming at this from someone who, when given the choice between Python and Ruby, went Ruby years ago, I'm kind of jealous of the standard library. Like one of, one of the annoying things for me is every Ruby project, there's always like four or five gems you always have to use. And in addition to Rails, right, which is in itself like 30 gems, it just seems crazy. To, like, like that mo model of architecture always makes me a little nervous because you have all these, like literally 20 or 30 external dependencies at least. Where in Python, most of that basic stuff is kind of just built in, batteries included. Mm. Yep. I, th I think the challenge is, and this is where, um, this is where I think Amber has has a great point, is that the way the transition has effectively gone down from two x to three x. I'm not going to use individual versions because it's just too hard. Has basically created two pythons. Ah, uh, yes. And you, you have to look at it from her perspective. She's not a Python app developer, you know, or like writing scripting or doing anything. She, she may be all of those things in addition, but in her talk, she's primarily representing her open source project, which, because of just their users' demands, right? Twisted is not a small project, has to support both, let's call it both streams of Python, which I don't know, man. I've been hearing about the Python 3 transition since before we started the show. I was just going to say that. 
<laughs> at some point, I mean, you had a, you know, last year they got rid of the benevolent dictator for life. My, why can't the last act be? Yeah, and by the way, we're just not supporting Python too, which I know is destructive and bad. And there are recordings of me complaining about things Rails has done that like destroy stuff I was using and make me rewrite it. But it seems like there's some delta between two relatively incompatible versions. And, you know, we just blow things up every time you, we have a change, right? Like, it seems like there's got to be a middle ground, maybe like three years. You know, I, I think there's a handful of projects, and I, I believe Python's one of the top three that really moved Red Hat's hand on introducing a new feature to RHEL called App Streams, or in Fedora, it's called Modularity. And this is an idea where you can now have virtual software repositories that are outside of the version of your main distro. So you can install RHEL 8, but you can install the RHEL 7 version of Python if you need old Python. Um, and when RHEL 9 comes out, you could be on RHEL 8, and you could install the RHEL 9 version if you needed a newer version of Python, or PHP, or whatever it might be. Uh, and it's then it's just all through your software package manager, and it all gets updated as long as it's a supported version that you know, RHEL makes available. And it's projects like this that have forced the software distributions, the Linux distributions and others, to come up with these kinds of creative solutions. <laughs> and, you know, that's probably, you know, it's also, it's these kinds of things that have led to the rapid adoption of containers. Yeah, I, I would think so, because in that case, you could have a container running the 2x stream, the 3x stream, and hopefully be okay. Okay, so... Um, there is also what is being quoted, this is according to the uh, uh, PyFound blogspot uh, article that we'll have linked in the show notes, the most controversial comment that Brown made in her speech. Now, again, I, we're not criticizing. I think good on her for bringing up these issues, so I want to make that clear. Um, and that was, adding modules to the standard library stifles innovation by discouraging programmers from using or contributing and completing Pi Pi package, Pi Pi packages. I don't know why it sounds weird when I say it out loud. Yeah, that that is the naming that I never quite understood why they named it that. But yeah, um, yeah, that's that's some uh, that's some bacon. I I don't know if I buy that. I could I could kind of see it. I guess they're worried about essentially being Sherlocked would be the concern. I guess, but the standard library is never going to move as fast as an individual project. Oh, obviously, <laughs> right. I mean. I'm, and if there was ever a community where that was true, maybe COBOL's a little slower. And I send your email to Alan at Jupiter Broadcasting. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I did at one point author and support an HTTP library in Objective-C long, long ago. And like, you know, NSHTP did exist, right? But yeah, you could do like a get request in one line. And at the time that was, you know, new for iOS with my library. Why, why wouldn't that be true in other languages? I'm just, I'm just, actually it is. I'm using a library called Sucker Punch in Rails, uh, Ruby on Rails, that does, um, I think it's, what the hell is it? Delayed jobs, but it does them as like, it's just an abstraction, right? It does them as simple, you know, it spins up the workers, all that fun stuff for you. It's just a nicer interface. I, I do wonder if it's a more of a cultural thing in the community that Python developers are just used to turning to the standard library first. Maybe it's maybe it's because you know it's a lot of that you always know it's available kind of kind of situation. I think. Can I zoom out here for a second? Zoom out. While you were talking and you're touching on a couple of these things, like my community, my community guy hat uh, slipped on, and I started thinking what's obvious when you read through uh, the event, and it happens a couple of different times in a couple of different ways. The core team 
and some of the major developers on some of these projects are essentially just they're talking past each other and they have different sets of core concerns. In fact, in her talk, Brown even kind of pointed out a little bit. She said that few Python core developers are also major library maintainers. So essentially to the core Python developers, the library author complaints are devalued or ignored because you know it doesn't affect them. It's not it's nothing that they're working on. It's not it can't be their problem. She said there's that issue there. And so looking at this, I think to me it's clear that people are talking past each other. And then I I also take Brown's point here that if nobody has uh, any skin in that particular game, they may not take it as seriously as they take their part of the job and so you have an empathy problem as well. Yeah, and also, you know, I keep making analogies to Ruby. One thing Ruby does not currently have that Python does is Python's being asked to do a lot of stuff, right? A lot of different domains with different, uh, I'll use the word stakeholders, and different types of developers, where, let's be honest, if you're writing Ruby, you're writing Rails, right? So, for instance, maybe the data scientist group who uses Python, maybe the ML people all have different concerns compared to, let's say, your Flask developer or your Django developer. And there's this weird Ubuntu guys running desktops app in Python too, but meh. <laughs> I don't know. Are they still around anymore? GTK is that a thing? No. I th- no, I thought I thought everybody's using Vala now. I thought that. <laughs> You've been drinking Cassidy's Elementary OS Kool Aid, I see. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I tell you what. Sometimes it's just so pretty. Can, you know, um, before we go. Uh, I, I wouldn't mind since I haven't talked to you. I wouldn't mind getting like an update on on your Linux setup right now. You run in Linux, and is it still? Is it elementary? Is it Ubuntu? Is it Pop? Where are you at right now? So things have calmed down. My desktop workstation is the Mac Mini with Mac, obviously. Oh yeah, uh, Mojave, right? Yes, you have to on those newer ones. You don't have a choice. You do. You have, you have no choice. How is the sound level on that thing? Well, I have it plugged into the L- LG monitor. So is it quiet though? And like, do you hear any fans? No, much less than, yeah, no, it's the quietest machine. Yeah. That's nice. Uh, The laptop is the Darter, which is running pop. I just updated it, 1904? Yeah. 1904, which is fine, right? Pop is very Mac OS-like in that it just works, and every once in a while I forget which OS I'm on in RubyMine, and I get the wrong command, uh, the wrong key commands. When you put the Mojave in uh, dark mode, I think it looks a lot like Gnome Shell. Yes, it's also terrible, though. <laughs> I, I'm liking my Mojave Lite these days just because there's always that one app I use that like doesn't respect dark mode, and it's like, whoa, blinding. Jeez, we, we run on old stuff? Jeez. I'm sorry. I will not pay for Photoshop again. And then, and then there must be a Windows box in this mix now. Yeah, there's a, there's, a Windows, uh, there's a Windows laptop that's just used for demos and testing, and there's Windows VMs basically everywhere. Are you uh, still WSL spelunking? I am. Um, I'm liking uh, Penguin quite a lot. Once WSL 2 is out, I'm probably going to take a very serious look at it. Really? Yeah. It's shipping a lot of things on Windows. I mean, most things, it, it's weird I say that. Most things, you know, by volume and just by time worked, are, we are shipping on Linux because most of this technology is like web and server technology. So it's all like back end anyway. But the front ends more and more are just becoming like Windows. I wonder if, I, I bet you, out there must be a build of that new terminal floating around out there. I know you can build it from source right now, but there must be a pre-built one. I'm telling you, it's compelling. Um, it sounds like some of the WSL folks that are involved, like the Penguin developer and uh, some folks from Canonical, were treated pretty well by Microsoft around this entire thing. Got some information, um, were uh, at the event at build if they could make it. It seems like Microsoft did right. 
I mean, weirdly enough, uh, going into WWDC, I'm actually looking at Microsoft saying, okay, what can Apple show for developers at WWDC, which is allegedly a developer conference during that little keynote? It's going to be the year of Marzipan, no doubt, right? Uh, I hope it's not. I hope Marzipan isn't the ace they think they have up their sleeve. It is. The answer is, don't worry about all this other crap. Just develop for the Apple ecosystem. It's simple. It's clear. This is how you build the application for both platforms. This is how you'd sell it. I mean, it's it's a complete story. It's an end-to-end story. I mean, for me, it's just not a practical story. No, no. For many, I don't think it is. I think that's their issue. That's their gamble. Is, is it practical for enough? Or is their ecosystem big enough that makes it, forces some people to make it happen? But yeah, I, when you look at it, it just, Marzipan, it just doesn't seem as compelling if it can't run on other platforms. Uh, it's funny, because when I think desktop software that I like professionally have to support, it's always Windows now. If you could write a Marzipan application that would run on Windows and Linux, like Electron does, um, that, I, let me just fantasize for a moment Okay, that they create some sort of super fast Electron competitor. You know, just to screw with Microsoft. It's not going to happen, but then it would at least be somewhat compelling, right? But if it's just you, could, your iPad app can run on the latest version of Mac OS, <laughs> that's a tiny, tiny market. There's hardly any iPad users, and there's hardly any users of the current Mac OS. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. All right, I'll target about, uh, what is that, about 300,000 people? <laughs> and how many of them are actually willing to pay me? Which is the other thing we didn't even cover this week, the Apple Supreme Court app store pricing thing. Yeah, I just don't even know what to make of that, you know? I think it's not going to matter. Really? Yeah. I mean, what, they're going to lower 30% to 20%? I mean, what do you, you think is going to happen? I don't know. So if the, for those of you that don't know, this essentially opens up the possibility for people to sue Apple for monopoly practices with the App Store. Both, both users and developers to sue. Yeah. Yeah. And you could really see how a group of developers or users could come together and put a hell of a suit together. And there's going to be some lawyer that would love to go after some of that Apple money. Yeah. but I mean, um, I've heard everything from... Um, Apple doesn't have an issue here to um, Apple will have to enable sideloading of applications <laughs> like they'll have to do gatekeeper for iOS um, I would be amazed if that happens but I know but the idea would be by default it only runs applications from the app store but you can download applications but you have to run them in a certain way where the users authorizing them or something like you know I you know how like gatekeeper works on the Mac uh, yeah yes I do I disable it <laughs> yeah <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say with these kinds of things. It really is. We're, we're going into an interesting place. I mean, I think, uh, you know, just to do a quick prediction, I think this year's WWDC is either going to be one of the most interesting because they do something really, really cool with a Mac Pro, which really cool for Apple would be just do the obvious simple black box. Or, like, I, I have this concern. I, I know people are going to be mad at the Apple Action Show, but I, I have this concern that they think a marzipan is a really good idea and that it's like super cool and people are going to be thrilled. And like all the longtime developers who are leaving for like Linux and Windows and moving on to web technologies, uh, all of me and a bunch of other people during that whole like Mac Exodus time are going to just like come back and do marzipan, which scares the crap out of me because it says they're, it, it, it suggests they're like missing the boat completely, right? Yeah, it's definitely not a play to reclaim developers. Right, like I, I, I don't know. I, I would be interested to hear from the audience. Yeah, are you out there? Are you psyched about Marzipan? And if so, why? What, like, what it, do you? Is it that you already have a successful iPad app and you just like to kind of spiff off some sales for Mac, which makes sense? 
I mean, okay, I'll give you an example of this. You know, because you're saying like, you know, you're running on the Mac Mini. What if as a result of Marzipan, uh, Slack rebases their Mac app off of uh, their iPad version and it uses half the amount of RAM. It launches twice as fast. It's only two gigs. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what if? Like, what if, what if that's, so there's an example of um, where developers from those companies who are already producing applications for both platforms can now save time and money and build for one and gets them off of Electron Possibly. I doubt, I actually seriously doubt Slack would do it. They have so much invested in their Electron app now, but it's a great example of one that would be a great opportunity. I mean, I kind of, I almost feel like Slack is the perfect case to do it, right? Because their, their Mac app is notorious, is widely used and like notoriously crappy compared to native Mac apps. But that, that's just, it's such a limited use case, right? So you already have to be big enough on Apple's platforms including Mac OS, which is like just a very small platform for that to be worth it, right? What if you have a new project you're starting, Chris? Are you really starting in Marzipan? No, no, I don't. Given like Xamarin exists, Electron exists, Flutter exists. It's more about you're starting, you're going to make an iOS app, and now you can also make some Mac sales. I think that's what it might be. Oh, yeah, it's going to be Shovelware Central too, right? Like, yeah. 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 Yeah, basically. I'm thinking about it from like games too, where the UI doesn't have to be very Mac-like. Um, like those Altos Odyssey type games. Yeah, I could see that. Like that, It seems like that would just be a no-brainer for those shops. It's going to be a lot of crap, man. It's going to be a lot of crap. It's, it's going to be rough. <laughs> it's, the Mac is going to such an interesting place right now with, with Marzipan and Arm on the Horizon and Apple's focus on iOS and the Mac Pro lingering. Like they're, it's, it's, it's interesting times for them right now. Um, and I feel like it's funny because just as a quick aside, like my Linux world is more rock solid than it's ever been. Like I'm, the ThinkPad is still really, really, really working for me. And uh, I've been r- stupid happy with XFCE. It's just a very simple desktop environment. I just really need my apps. I don't need anything more. It's stupid quick. The thing wakes up faster than a MacBook. This ThinkPad with all open source graphics drivers and XFCE, like it's legitimately before the screen's even like halfway up, it's awake and ready to go. It's really great. And so I'm looking back, you know, from a very detached perspective now, because none of my gear is dependent anymore on what they do, where when we were doing the show just a couple of years ago, there were some pieces in the production pipeline that were Mac machines and very critical. I just, uh, I don't know, it gives me a very different perspective now, and I I can't help but just chuckle a little bit, because it's just fascinating to see where they're going to go. You know, for people that depend on it for their day-to-day work tool, whew. I say, you know, you look at Windows 10, the, the thing that they really have going for it is not only is the Surface line pretty decent, Mike, but then you do have a bunch of other vendor options if Microsoft ever screws that up. And that's the Windows and Linux advantage. I know, I harp on that, but I just think you look at it where there's just so much uncertainty right now on that platform. And where I'm at, I feel like I have more certainty than ever. I've got more hardware choices than ever. My desktop's working better than it ever has. <laughs> I don't know, it's just a really weird position to be in. It's weird. I mean, and for those of us who are like somewhat tethered to the Mac ecosystem, because we, in my case, you know, have to compile iOS apps and deploy them. It's it's interesting. Like ju- just ten years ago, Apple, I felt really had a good, like, firm grasp of the developer market, right? And now it's just like, 
maybe it's the relative success. I see. We, we, I mean, we, we can't really post more to it, but it just seems like, okay. Like I, okay. He, he, cards on the table. I'm terrified that they're going to like release this Mac pro. And then in a year or two, you know, there will be lots of excited people who've been waiting for a Mac pro who will spend lots of money. Right. Like this is a type of machine people are going to finance. Seriously. Oh yeah. And then they're going to like switch to arm in a year or two, right. With their own chips. (laughs) (laughs) I know. That's what I was saying. Right. Which, which is kind of like, holy shit. Like you can't do like. It's a huge risk. It's a huge risk. And it's, it's so weird to me because if they had just like not been stubborn and made a simple black cube, called it a Mac Pro and everybody would have been happy years ago, I certainly wouldn't have gone down this primrose path here, right? Like it, it would have been fine. Right. Or put this another way. Wouldn't marzipan be a great opportunity for Apple to come out clear? They're on the stage at WWDC. They name this thing, whatever it's going to be finally called. And they say, and by the way, this is the technology we're using to move the Mac to the ARM platform. So that way you just knew straight up right then, because there's a very good chance that the second half of the marzipan story is prepping the Mac for ARM. And I think this is a great opportunity for them just to be straight up. All right, you want to depend on the Mac platform? You want to plan for the next few years? This is our intention. And this is their opportunity this year at WWDC to be clear about it. Otherwise, you're buying a $10,000 machine or a $5,000 machine if you get a deal on an iMac Pro um, with a ARM transition looming on the horizon that you have no insights on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and they have done stuff like that before without the telling you part. Remember uh, the uh, several years ago when they uh, changed Xcode to compile not to native code, but to bytecode, which is their... Pr- and why? Well, because they had the Apple Watch in labs, but they didn't want to announce it, and they needed to compile down to that architecture or whatever it was. Right. I, I don't know. And it ha- that was a good move, you know? It's made, a, it's made like the Apple Watch transition to 64-bit, lickety-split. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the question is, if you're a developer, what tools are you using that exist on macOS that don't exist on Windows 10 or Linux? Um, and unless the answer is I develop iOS apps, it's kind of like just do whatever you want and probably don't choose Mac at this point. Yeah, and we're you're going to get a taste of it because I believe the so uh, Mojave is the uh, last version of macOS that um, supports 32-bit applications. Well, that's the other thing. A bunch of people have a bunch of like internal legacy Mac apps that are just going to break. Yeah, so that'll be a good test of the market's resiliency. Uh, how how many people hold off on upgrading? How many people upgrade and have things break? Or how many people upgrade and it's flawless? Like I have a suspicion I wouldn't have very much p- trouble. I'd, I think a couple of Adobe things I have are 32-bit, and I don't really care about those too much. So, um, yeah, that's a, that'll be an interesting testing of the waters because that'll be out in the fall, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, it should come out in the fall, yeah. Yeah, which is probably when the Mac Pro will ship, too. It'll ship in the fall with the new OS. So, so does a Mac Pro ship, do you think? I think it does. Not a WWDC. Oh, of course not, no. Maybe they announce it, then pre-orders open up, like, in October or whatever, you know, and then when the OS ships, then Mac Pro ships, and it ships in the week or two around the new OS with the OS pre-installed. That seems like their style, doesn't it? Because they'll, they'll satisfy everybody if they just announce it. They don't actually have to ship it. It'd be, I mean, they should because they're so far. But I mean, remember that? I think the trash can was released in. I might be wrong, but I think it was released in 2013. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just uh, just ask John Syracuse. He'll give you a 
hour by hour. So it, it, they may not even release this thing. They probably will not release this thing at WWDC. And right now, as we record this episode, the current Mac Pro, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, yeah, December 19th, 2013. Wow. December of so it was it was basically probably started shipping early 2014. Yeah, so 2020. If you pre-order one on day one, happy new year. Second week of January. And you know what's great too? You know what's so great about Apple? It's so it's so great because a product is a product and it costs a certain amount of money, right? And it doesn't matter. You if you go to Best Buy right now or uh, you go to the Apple store or wherever you go, they're still the same prices that they launched them with in 2013. Of course they are. A a 3 gigahertz late 2013 model with 16 gigabytes of RAM and a 256 gigabyte hard drive uh, and a single 8-core processor, you know, instead of a dual processor, (laughs) $4,000 for a machine from 2013. (laughs) Like, I love that. I love that about Apple. It's like, you know, that the price is the price and it never changes. You know what? I wish I could negotiate like Tim Cook, man. That's like, no, nah, just costs what it costs. 1,978 days for the, since the last update. Well, Mr. Dominic, it, people don't have to wait that long for a coder radio. In fact, no, it's every single week, often on Mondays. You can get it over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. All the links, subscribes, all that stuff. We have a dedicated site, coder.show. Go check that out, coder.show. And of course, the live stream calendar is jupiterbroadcasting.com com slash calendar mr dominic where can people find you on the twitters throughout the week uh at dominuco on twitter i'm at chris les the network is at jupiter signal the show is at coda radio show how about all of that huh hmm how about all of that mike you'll have to join us on the friday stream soon new show where the crew gets to just hang out and meet meet the audience do i have to wear pants no get that camera ready drinks are allowed no pants required Yeah, yeah, it is all on camera. Yeah, for sure. Love it. All right, everybody. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Coda Radio Program. And Wes and Mike will see you right back here next week.